0: This morning we come once again to God's Word. We come to the Gospel of John. We're in the fifth chapter. This is the time we open this book, this God-breathed book, to get God's thoughts, God's mind. We're so saturated all week with the thoughts of the world, our own thoughts. Um, We need to think biblically, and we ask God this morning to open His Word to us as we... uh, come to this chapter in John. John chapter 8 is where we'll be, but John chapter 5, let me refer back to that just for a moment. John chapter 5, three chapters before this one, about a year earlier than John chapter 7 and 8 in the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus in John chapter 5 intentionally sets up a confrontation with the religious leaders. They are watching him like a hawk while he is around that pool of Siloam where all the lame people are trying to get into the rushing waters. They're watching him, and it's the Sabbath day in John 5. It's the Sabbath day that Jesus determines that he is going to heal this man. He could have done it on any other day, but he chose the Sabbath day to set up the confrontation that he would have with these religious leaders to one of the critical points of their legalistic religious system, which was the keeping of the Sabbath and all the rules associated with the Sabbath. Jesus will go on to tell them that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. They will accuse him of breaking the law. They will accuse him and hate him for what he does regarding the Sabbath. But then Jesus will go on in that same confrontation and begin to tell them that my Father and I are always working. He will begin to tell them things that identify him with God. And the result is the confrontation gets more and more violent. And we see this in chapter 5, verse 18, has been sort of the feeder verse for all the chapters after this. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That's blasphemy, and that is the reason for their hatred of him for the next six chapters of John. He avoids Jerusalem for about a year or so. We're told in chapter 7, he stays up in Galilee in the northern section of Israel, away from Jerusalem. He heals 5,000. He gives the famous... Uh, Bread of Life sermon, that great sermon that we talked about in John 6 at Capernaum, at the synagogue there. And then in John 7, he returns to Jerusalem, and that's where we left off last time. In John 7, he's come back to Jerusalem to the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles that yearly required for, for Jewish males, required celebration, when they would celebrate and remind themselves of traveling through the wilderness living in tents and how God provided for them. And that's the scene we have as we come even into chapter 8 this morning. They're, but they're angry at him. They, the religious leaders, uh, it may be a year later, but they have not forgotten John 518 they have not forgotten the scene in john 5 of healing on the sabbath and claiming to be god that's just hanging over and they know he's doing miracles they know he's getting more popular with the people and they see all of these things but they hate him john 1 11 says he came to his own and those who were, who were his own did not receive him we're in chapter 8 this morning In chapter 8, the pivotal verse is going to be verse 24. Look at that verse. And you think about this verse. You just think about what this is saying. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Got this continuing theme of unbelief that's been in every chapter And here it comes again, right into chapter 8. In the first half of this chapter, Jesus is going to make three more claims about himself. He's going to say, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Secondly, he's going to say, I'm going to go to my Father. I'm going to ascend to heaven. And thirdly, he's going to say, I am the solution to the sin problem. Those are the claims that Jesus is going to make. The, 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 in chapter 7, the, the crowds were in turmoil over the claims that he was making. Well, the claims are going to pick up. Now, before I start John 8, there's one thing I have to say about John 8. And you may notice this, and I referred to it last week as we ended John 7. And that is those first eleven verses of John chapter eight. It actually starts in verse fifty-three of John chapter seven, and it goes to verse eleven of John chapter eight. You see a brackets in there, and the point, I guess, how what, the way it's set off there is because the translators are suggesting that it was not part of the original that this section about this adulterous woman was added later and i'm going to tell you there is strong evidence that that is true but let me read it to you verse 53 of john 7 everyone went to his home but jesus went to the mount of olives early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court they said to him, "Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, excuse me, now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say?" They were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they (laughs) per, excuse me, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Very familiar story. Lovely story. But most modern versions, like I said, do not. This is not likely something that John was inspired to write. That's what most theologians say. Most inspired the modern versions. That's the reason for the bracketing, and they say that this was added later. And like I said, I think there's strong evidence that that is true. When you're doing textual criticism, you look for external evidences and internal evidences. I would say internally, this verse says nothing wrong or anything that counters anything theologically, internally. Externally, there are some problems, and let me tell you some of those. I want you to be able to trust your Bible so I, you just listen to what I'm saying and you can draw your own conclusion about this because you know what? It doesn't matter in the big picture of things because it's, a, it's, it's, not a, it's not a bad story. It's a wonderful story. But does it belong in John? Do we treat these verses like we've been treating the rest of John is the question. One, it is not present in the earliest Greek manuscripts. Those manuscripts that are closest to the original autographs, you don't see this story listed or written there at all. Secondly, it is absent from all the earliest translations into other languages from those Greek manuscripts. You don't see it in any of the translations, early translations of the Bible, anywhere. Anywhere. Um, and some of those translations were written a century after John wrote the Gospel of John. And so you don't see it. Thirdly, it was not used by any preachers or scholars in the opening 300 years of the church. The truth is that none of the early church fathers ever referred to it, they refer to John all over the place. But they never illustrate this passage. They never talk about this passage. They never exegete this passage. They never preach from this passage. The early church fathers did not have it in the book of John. The Eastern church did not have it. In, excuse me, D.A. Carson said this, and D.A. Carson is a great source on this uh, in his commentary, but he says all the early church fathers omit this narrative in commenting on John. They pass immediately from chapter seven, verse 52 and jump down to verse 12. But he says, "None of them have verses 53 1 through, or 1 through 11 of chapter eight. And like I said, no churches in the Eastern Church for 900 years. Alexandria and Corinth and Galatia and all of those places. For 900 years, you don't see this passage anywhere in any. Of the translations and when it does show up in the later manuscripts they cannot agree on where to put it this is the most commonplace they put it but they've also put it after John 21 they've also put it after Luke 21 it's that kind of a passage that's obviously just been inserted and the read and the and the interpreters of the Bible they don't want to You know, and I I can appreciate this. You don't want to ever lay something aside that you shouldn't lay aside. But the external evidence makes us say, where did this come from? It's a lengthy passage, but obviously was not part of John's writing when he wrote the book of John, the gospel of John. Many scholars believe this event of this adulterous woman did happen very possibly did happen, that it was part of oral tradition that surrounded the life and ministry of Christ. Many believe that, and that's certainly possible. There's a lot of things that Jesus did that were not written down in the Bible. We're told that at the end of John. Uh, But there's no evidence that this is inerrant. There's no evidence that this belongs in the Bible from the external evidence. That's out there. Also, um, like I said, in the Western church, it's shown up in our translations all through the centuries because nobody, like I said, nobody wants to leave it out. It's a, it's a wonderful, truly a wonderful story and, uh, and likely a true story. And it's um, a popular story. I've heard this one all my Christian life. The story of the adulterous woman. One Bible teacher said, "Even Hawthorne's "The Scarlet Letter" is based on this passage. So it's been around for a long time, uh, and there's nothing theologically incorrect about it, and you read it and you go, uh, "But it does it fit. Does it belong here? Does it belong in the Bible anywhere?" That's the question, and that's what do you appreciate about the Bible interpreters. They bracket it to tell you, we just inserted it here. We just put it here. So I say, you can trust your Bible, because you've got the integrity of Bible interpreters who will point that out to you. They just won't stick it in there and not tell you. There are other passages in the Bible where you'll see brackets sometimes. Most are not this lengthy. Um, the end of Mark you have an example of that uh, which is a little not as long as this but it's also a little bit it's longer than most but sometimes it's just a few words or a phrase and they'll note that this was added it's not in the earliest manuscripts Uh, so different preachers handle this differently different preachers will just preach it anyway and just tell you what I've just told you about it Um. This, this is really an easier when I, when I say that the other, there are other examples of things added at times that get noted with the brackets. this is the easiest one to say doesn 't belong in here it doesn 't belong here because there 's so much evidence that says it shouldn 't be in john 's gospel and you can research that I, I, and I, you probably think your pastor 's turned into a heretic he 's taking something out of the Bible. I hate man listen. But I just want to say that there's a reason they bracket it. And it's a lengthy passage. And it's a, it's a sweet passage. It's a good passage. You know what I'm going to do today? I'm not going to preach that passage. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to use it as an illustration at the end. I'm going to come back to it at the end. Because I don't think I should handle it the same way I've been handling the rest of John. And also to tell you this, when you read that pat, when you read what I just read to you, it just doesn't sound like it fits at all. We are in Jerusalem. We are in. The temple area. Jesus is being challenged by the religious leaders. Jesus it's the Feast of Booths. And then the Feast of Booths has two celebrations. One with water and one with light. The light passage is today. You've got this interruption in the middle that takes us to the next day. It takes us to the day after the Feast of Booths has already ended. So I have to say to you this morning we're no longer in the Feast of Booths if we Leave this long passage in there. Does that make sense? You see, the, the, the point is, it's choppy. It, it doesn't really fit the flow of the passage. Let me show you what I mean. You see, everyone went to his own home. What, well, that just came out of nowhere. That just came out of nowhere. We're having this discussion in the temple, and then all of a sudden, everyone went to his own home. But Jesus you know, then goes to the Mount of Olives, and then the next morning, which takes you outside the week of the Feast of Booze. So it just chops it up. It's just not flowing through there. So I think if you did any kind of study on this, you would come to the same conclusion I have this morning. You don't have to agree with me, and you don't have to say, the way I'm saying it at all this morning, but I just want you to be aware of why I'm just going to skip it as far as treating it like i have treated other passages in John and jump to verse 12 this morning. And I'll come back to it, like I said, and use it as an illustration because it does illustrate you will die in your sins if you don't believe in me. It illustrates that beautifully. I just don't think this is a divine illustration. It's one that I'm just going to use as an illustration this morning. I hope that's clear. I hope I haven't ruined anybody's faith this morning. I hope that you just understand that this is just uh, the integrity of the Scripture, and I think that's an important thing for us to always seek to uphold, and I appreciate the scholars who noted this for us and pointed that out for us. Um, well, look at verse 12 this morning. Three things. He is going to say he is the light of the world. And we've heard this before, light of the world. And this is a statement that he makes in the midst of, the, the, like I said, the Feast of Booze. And he makes this because he captures the moment again. He captures the moment of the Feast of the Booze, which is the lighting of the candelabras in the court of the treasury. There are so many candles in there that get lit that it just lights up the whole place just like he did with the celebration of water. When they would ran down to the pool of Siloam and got the, the pitcher of water and brought it back and poured it on the altar, he captured that moment by saying, I am living water. Drink of me and you will have living water within you. You will live. Believe in me. Drink me. I am water that satisfies he captured that moment for us last week in the Feast of the booze Celebration. Today, he captured this event, which is the lighting of the candles. Those lights are going to go out. I will never go out. I am the light of the world. And the lighting of the lamps is what's just taken place every night They have seen this. These lamps would be lit up and Jerusalem would be lit up at night because they would see all that light. And Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light. See, they did the light. You know why they did the light? They did the light because the Shekinah glory of God would appear in the nighttime, the cloud during the day, the light at night, the pillar of fire at night to take people through the wilderness in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I am. I am that Shekinah glory. I am that light. I am the light to the nations. Listen to these verses. They know what he is saying. The religious leaders hear him say this. They know what he is saying. Why? Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, who I Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Talking about the Messiah, he says, "I will put my spirit within him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations." This is Isaiah forty-two then five. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord; I have called you in righteousness. To open, verse 7, blind eyes. To bring, out, to bring out prisoners. Excuse me, verse 6. Let me finish that. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. He says in Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you a light to the, of the nations, speaking once again of the Messiah. By calling himself light, the light of the world, he is saying something very messianic. He is saying something that those religious leaders know is identifying him as the Messiah, identifying him as God. We've seen this in John before. If you flip over to John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5 of John, John 1, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Darkness can be evil. Darkness can be uh, ignorance. Darkness can be false religion, trying to earn your way to God by your own human effort. Darkness. I shine in that darkness. He said, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light. He was not the light. He just testified about the light. Pointing people to the light. Flip over to John 3, 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. How come, how come we run from the light? How come men run and want to get away from the light? It's because it says their deeds are evil. They love their deeds. They love their evil deeds. They don't want their evil deeds exposed. They don't want you to say there's something wrong with their evil deeds. It's like you're trapped in a dark cave. All of a sudden, a flashlight appears coming into the cave. And what do you do? You run deeper into the darkness of the cave. That's the same idea. I don't want the light. Most shameful acts happen in the dark, right? We don't want anybody to see. And we don't want God to expose us. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, like in the wilderness. Like those big, huge candelabras you're looking at. They're symbolic of me. I'm the Shekinah glory. You either can live in my light or in your sins and die in your sins. There's seven statements in the book of John that Jesus says, I am statements. I've said this to you before. I just remind you of this. This is the second one. I am the light of the world. We did the first one back in John 6. I am the bread of life. All of these give significance to who he is. Something about him. We're going to see in John 10 later, I am the door. We're going to see in John 10, I am the good shepherd. We're going to see in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to see in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to see in John 15, I am the true vine. I am. He uses that I am language because that's the name that Moses Heard God say when, when he asked God, who shall I say sent me? Everybody's gonna say, Who sent you? He you say, I am sent you. I am sent you. Look look at the um, look at the end of uh, John 8, 58, verse 58. And we're going to see this later as we come to John, as we go through John 8. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I always existed. I was here before Abraham. That's Jesus speaking about himself. See, John is a book about the deity of Christ. It's over and over again. You, 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 you read all the time, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did, over and over and over again. That's why they hated him so much, because of his claim. Notice also back in John 8, verse 12, He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of men. I want to say this about the light. The light is not something to just be admired. Oh, what a beautiful light. Oh, what a beautiful Jesus. Oh, what a great man. Oh, what a great teacher. Oh, what a great scholar. Oh, what a great faith healer. Oh, what a great, great person. Listen, Jesus does not want you to admire him. Jesus wants you to follow him. Many people, I've heard this so many times through the years. I believe in Jesus. I just don't want to follow Jesus. Folks, that is not believing in Jesus. We are to follow Jesus. Jesus. He is the light to be followed. Read in Numbers chapter 9, when the light was leading the people. They would go, the light followed the light, followed the cloud through the wilderness. When it stopped, they stopped. When it went, they went. When it stopped, they stopped. They followed the light. Jesus is to be followed, not just believed in, if you truly believe in him, you follow him. If you, any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You're not a believer if you don't follow. We are to be followers. We are to be the light of the world ourselves. Jesus is the source of that light. He says, you are the light of the world. He's telling that to us as believers. You are a light to the world. Let people see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says all this to them. He says all this and they get, they just get technical. (laughs) You know when you've already made up your mind, you don't believe somebody? You just kind of ignore what they say and you just got to get technical again. That's kind of what they do here. This whole light of the world, big statement here, it really isn't until you get to chapter nine that you start to see in the healing of the blind man. It really comes alive of what that's all about. Here, they just want to attack him, attack him. They know what he's claiming. They've already made up their mind. That they don't believe in him, so let's just discredit him. You know how that goes. I don't like what you're saying. I will just discredit you. So he says in verse 13, they call him a liar. You see that in John eight thirteen. You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Hey, you can't do this. You cannot testify about yourself. You know what the law says. You got to have witnesses to verify or to support what you are saying. We've had this argument before previously in chapter 5, by the way. He had already told them back in chapter 5, I've got my witnesses. God the Father is my witness. John the Baptist is my witness. My miracles are my witness. The scriptures are my witness. I've got my witnesses. He's already said all that to them. Obviously, they have conveniently forgotten it. You can't stand up and make a statement, an unsupported statement like that. I am the light of the world. You've got to have... Witnesses. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, for I am not, and I am not judging anyone. Listen, your law about having two witnesses to go into a court of law to support an argument is for you because you are liars. Men are liars. The reason I have to take an oath in a courtroom, folks, you know why? Because I have a tendency to lie. The reason you have to have witnesses because you tend to lie, or you could lie, or you could be biased. Jesus says that's not true about me. That law in Deuteronomy 19 about two witnesses, he's saying, doesn't really apply to me. I am true. I am not a man. I am not a man. I didn't come from here. And you judge according to the flesh. You're inadequate to evaluate me. Verse 16, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father. I am the Father who sent me. Uh, same thing he said back in John 5. My judgment is the Father's judgment. We work together. We, we have a divine teamwork. The Father and the Son. Verse 16, excuse me, verse uh 17, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. And I have that, my Father and me. I am he who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. We want to question your witness. Where is your Father? See that? Verse 19, let's talk to him. Let's talk to your father. Father, yeah, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. They want to talk to the witness. Now, this could be a reference to the fact there was a rumor going around that Jesus was uh, an illegitimate child. That was a rumor that was going around. Some people, commentators, think that about this verse. They're asking kind of in a derogatory way. Where is your father? Let's talk about this father thing. The point is their hearts are not open they don't believe, they don't want to believe in him like we saw earlier in John chapter seven. If you don't want to believe in me, then you will not know if the words are true or not. They are of that category. At John 14, you may recall when Philip even asked this question, Lord, show us some more miracles. How do we know you're really from God? How do we know? Even at the, toward the end, Jesus said, I have been with you so long and yet you've come to, to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father so the Pharisees' ignorance is just inexcusable and they have heard these things before. Jesus has said these things to them before. I am of my Father who is in heaven. I am of divine essence because my Father is divine. When, you, when a human has a child, that child is human essence. Christ has divine essence because his Father is God. These things he spoke in the treasury, verse 20 says, the court of the women probably in the temple, most likely that's where all these candelabras would have been. That's where the receptacles were that took the money that people would give. But no one arrested him because God is sovereign, Acts 21 says, and no one can do anything outside the sovereign plan of God. It was not his time. It says that in verse 20. His time had not yet come. So Jesus makes this statement, controversial. I'm the light of the world who gives you the right to say it. What I say is true because I'm God. My father is my witness to that. And he really doesn't address much else about what they say regarding that. And then his next claim is in verse 21. I'm going to ascend to heaven. Then he said to them in verse 21, I will go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I will go away. I think he's referring to his crucifixion. I'm going to go away. You will look for me. You know, you're going to keep looking for a Messiah even after I'm gone. Jews are still looking for a Messiah today. But even when I am gone, you're going to be looking for a Messiah. He's saying, but where I'm going, you cannot come. In fact, you are going to die in your sin what does he mean? They don't know what he means. They don't know what he means when he said, I am going away. Does this mean he's going to Galilee? Does this mean he's going to those uh, people, uh, the, the Greeks? Where, where is he going? Verse 22, so the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You know what that is saying? That is saying, according to the, the Jewish tradition, if you killed yourself, if you committed suicide, Your body would be, it was a horrible sin to do that and your body would be forced to just lay in the open and nobody would be allowed to bury it that whole day, for a whole day. And then no one could come and cry over your body laying there. Nobody can mourn over it. That was their view of suicide. It was an unpardonable, unforgivable sin. And the person that committed suicide, get this, would go into the darkest place of hell, a place where they'd be totally unredeemable, There could never be atoned for, they could never be forgiven for what they had done. Folks, I would tell you the Roman Catholic Church in some sometimes had held this very same view. That is not true, by the way. I will just say that before I move on. That is not true. If you are a believer and you come to a low point in your life at some point and you commit suicide, that is not the unforgivable sin. I would certainly pray you would never do that. It would be a very selfish thing to do. It would be a horrible thing to do. You would want to question your salvation uh, along the way for sure. But if you're truly a believer, there is no sin that can separate you or will ever bring condemnation on you in Christ. As horrible as that would be, that was not the unforgivable sin. But the Jews thought, well, maybe he's talking about committing suicide because that would mean he would go to a place we would never go to. Follow me? He's going to go to the deepest part of hell. And that's not a place any of us are going to go to. You follow me? That's how self-righteous they are. That must be what he's talking about. He's going to kill himself and suffer the horrible consequences of that. If eternally separated from God, that is not something that would ever happen to any of us. That's kind of the thinking they have there. Um, verse 23 and he was saying to them you are from below I am from above you are of this world I am not of this world you're worldly in your thinking Um, I come from heaven that's my origin I'm going to go back to my father I'm going to ascend back to heaven Um, the work of redemption will one day be complete and then I want to finish up with this one In verse 24, he says, I am the solution to sin. And this is the crux of this passage. Notice what he says in verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, and the word he, by the way, is inserted there, unless you believe I am, You will die in your sin. We've inserted the word "He." I am He flows better in the English. But you will die in your sins. What are you saying here? And get this: I am the solution to the worst problem and the worst disease of humanity, and that's sin. And, folks, I want to tell you this: Only Christianity, only Christianity, deals with this issue. Only Christianity confronts this issue. Only Jesus Christ confronted this issue. No other world religion does this. No other world religion considers this. Only Christ said this statement that he is the solution to the sin problem in humanity. He is standing before them saying, I am the embodiment of... Of God's plan for salvation that is what he is saying I am the embodiment of God's plan for the removal of death and sin that's what he is saying I am the body that this is the body that was prepared for that purpose God God's hatred of sin this this is for forever this has been the problem It's the dominant theme of the Old Testament And Jesus is standing in front of them and saying, I'm the solution to the holiness and unholiness problem. God is holy, man is unholy. I am the solution to that conflict. I am the solution to the divide that exists because God is holy and man is unholy. I am the solution to the problem that mankind will face judgment of God because they're not holy unholiness cannot be in the presence of holiness. And Jesus is standing in front of them saying, I am the one that holds back that judgment that you deserve. I am the one that holds back that judgment that all humanity deserves because it's unholy. He says, I am the bridge. I am the bridge between God and man. That's what he's saying. I am the bridge that takes unholy man to a holy God. You see what he's saying? That's what Jesus is saying. Therefore, excuse me. Therefore, I say to you, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. I am the solution, the one that can take you to God. I am the one that is the substitute that can pay the penalty of your sin and satisfy the wrath of a holy God In your place. That's what he's saying. I am God in flesh. Only God can do this. Man cannot do this. There is no man holy enough, perfect enough, that can be the bridge between an holy God and an unholy man. Jesus says, I'm the solution. I'm the the solution that all those sacrifices in the temple were pictures of. I'm the reality. I am the reality of all those animals that have died and the blood that was shed that never made man right with God. I'm the fulfillment of all of those pictures. I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament problem of a holy God and an unholy man and bringing them together. One commentator said this, the one thing... God could do, excuse me, the one thing God could not do was face human rebellion and do nothing. He must judge it or assume it. Assume it. You follow that? He assumed. He assumed. He assumed the human rebellion. He assumed my sin. He assumed all of my shortcomings. He assumed it all and judged it. And was judged for it in my place. He's the one that holds back the judgment that we all deserve. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will not die in your sins. If you don't believe in me, guess what? You pay for your own sins. You die in your sins and you carry the burden of your own sins. And you spend eternity trying to pay for them and you will never pay for them. Or you believe in me. You believe in me, your sins are paid for. The wrath of God is held back against you because of me. That is an incredible statement to these people. They're freaking out. Man, this is just, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? People are stumped, you know. It's like, it's one thing to say you're the light of the world, well, we can kind of spin that, you know, light of the world, just has a higher knowledge, Oh, I'm going to send to heaven. Oh, he has a vision. I can spin it that way. You can't spin this statement. I am the solution to the sin problem. Wow, that cuts deep. That says something. Because you know what they're saying? They're saying something. He is saying something only God can say. Only God can do something about sin. He can judge it or he can assume it. In Christ, he assumes my sin and took the judgment for me. That's, that's huge. That's Christianity, by the way. That's Christianity. Get that one down. When you're talking to somebody about gospel, you're not talking about just following a man named Jesus. You're talking about being united to a man named Jesus. You're talking about him taking my sin away. You're talking about him paying a penalty for me that I can have access to a holy God. And so, there's the question, verse 25, who are you? See it, verse 25? I've been telling you this all along. I'm a Jew. He says, you are a Jew claiming, claiming, to Jews, that you are our salvation. But only God can do this. Only God can do this. Who are you? Who are you claiming to be God? This is what I've been telling you from the beginning. This is the logical conclusion of what I've been saying since John 5, though he didn't say John 5. But this is what I've been telling you the whole time. I am the solution to sin which leads to death i am the substitute verse 26 i have many things to speak and to judge concerning you but he who sent me is true and the things which i heard from him these things i speak to, these i speak to the world i'm from god he is true i am true i speak to the world i speak in his authority i Am God. They did not realize, verse 27, he'd been speaking to them about the Father. More, they just did not want the Father to be his witness. Verse 28, so Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Lift up means put me on the cross. Means he will be lifted up, put on a cross, and crucified. Then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as his Father taught me. When I die on that cross, you will see six months from that date, by the way, six months in Passover from this date of October to April, he will be put on the cross. When I am lifted up, the earth is going to shake, the sky is going to get dark, the Roman soldier is going to say, this truly is the Son of God, and the veil in the temple is going to be written too. A lot of things are going to happen that day. I do nothing on my own initiative. It's all orchestrated by God. I speak the things as the Father taught me. I am here doing His will. I do nothing on my own initiative. His authority, He always goes back to the Father. Verse 29, And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Side note, side note to this verse. If you want to be Christ-like in the way you relate to authorities in your life, imitate Jesus right here. Imitate Jesus right here. Not my will, but your will be done. That's what Jesus is saying. He models a perfect example for us on how to relate to the authorities that God has brought into our life. Your husband, your boss, your teachers, church leaders, government, all of these things. Not my will, but thy will be done, was what Jesus said to the Father. That's what he's saying. I don't do things on my own. Be reminded of submission to legitimate authority from Jesus' example right here. That's the epitome of likeness. That is Jesus at his best. Not my will, but thy will be done. In verse 30, as he spoke these things, look what happens. Many people came to believe in him and that's the point of the passage. He challenged them. He put it out there. He told them and warned them, and many believed in him. Look at the lady. Look at the lady at the beginning of the chapter. Go back to her for a moment. In chapter verses 1 through 11, I got a, I got a minute here. Let me show you this from this illustration. This is the adulterous woman, right? Told you about her at the beginning of the service this morning. We read this already once. She's drug by the Pharisees in front of Jesus. They're trying to catch Jesus. They're using her. They don't care about this woman. They don't care anything about her. They just want to use her to trap Jesus. They caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The question I always have when I read this story is, where's the man, right? But the point is, that's not the point. The point for these people, that's not the point. The point, this is a woman they caught in this very act to test Jesus. Verse 6 says, and Jesus says, who is without sin among you? Let him cast the first stone. Listen, she should be, she should be put to death. She should be. That's the law. Committing adultery brought the law of stoning, uh, death by stoning. And so there's justice to be upheld here, no doubt about it. He stoops down to the ground. Nobody knows what he wrote, folks. Don't ever try to figure this one out. People have speculated in commentaries forever. What was Jesus writing? He was probably just doodling, somebody said, to spare time to figure out what to say. I doubt that. But the point is, you read all kinds of craziness with this story. He says, who condemns you? Verse 30, 50, excuse me, verse 10. Did, who condemns you? He asked that question. If you, haven't thrown a stone, if you haven't sinned, then you can throw the stone. Everybody walked away. Here's the point. She looks into the eyes of her judge. She looks into the eyes of the one who is her judge, and she finds forgiveness. And that's exactly what we have seen this morning. Jesus is the solution to the sin problem. He can pardon her because of what he is going to do for her. You follow me? He is going to assume her sin of adultery. He is going to take that sin on himself and he is going to go to the cross. It's because of what he does on the cross that he can do two things. He can uphold the justice of God. Someone has to die. And he can uphold the mercy of God in pardoning her. That's exactly what he's done for you and I in saving us. He didn't just sweep sin under the rug. He does not condone this woman's sin. He dies for it. Somebody has to die, and Jesus is the one who died so that I could go free. Isn't that a wonderful message? That's the gospel. Father God, thank you for our time today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. God, we are so grateful that we have a gospel to share, a gospel to proclaim to this world, this hopeless world that's in darkness, that need to know that Jesus is the light that Jesus can open blind eyes, that Jesus can be a light to our path and guide us and lead us. We thank you and praise you for this time this morning in Jesus' name, amen.